for salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved than that of the name of Jesus. So Father, today remind us of this truth, that though there is There is judgment that must be done on our sin, and that judgment is coming one day. There is salvation and grace available now for the one who will repent. God, remind us of your gospel and remind us of the beauty found therein. Father, speak to us by your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Good morning, everyone. It is great to see you on this brisk winter morning. Uh, brisk, that's, that's the word I'm going with. Uh, I think the high today is supposed to be four degrees. And so um, I am aware of the forecast. Uh, that does not mean I have shortened my sermon, but I am aware of the forecast. And... and um, you know, if, if some of you get up and walk out uh, when the, the first fl flakes start falling, um, I will not be offended because I understand uh, the dangers of falling in a new and uh, unique way these days. And so, um, you know, uh, you guys take care of yourselves. But we are excited that you're here. We're excited that the uh, folks that are watching online are able to uh, join us even though they're not able to be here and so we just are thankful for that technology um, a couple of quick things I wanted to remind you of we do have new recharge books most of you have probably already gotten them at this point in time if you are watching online and you would like to download that that is available uh, both on our website and last week's sermon page or through the YouVersion Bible app. There's a link there to download as well. So we encourage you to, you can get a digital version of the, that book if you would like. And if you did any of your recharge studies this week, you notice that they are very different. Uh, if you didn't listen to me last week uh, to find that out, you, you know it now because you cannot really do much of the recharge book unless you also have the book the line of faith by bill elif and so i want to encourage you there are still some copies of the line of faith uh laura if we go to that next slide um we are suggesting a donation of six dollars uh to cover the cost of that book if you cannot afford the six dollars for that book we still want you to get that book and so there are a few more copies, and if we run out and we need to order more, we can always do so. But I want to encourage you to, to utilize these resources. These are some, some uh, well, I've gotten some great feedback from the people I've talked to about the, this book this week. Uh, it's an excellent book. It's been very impactful for me and my life, and so I wanted to share it. Uh, with you as well. So I encourage you to pick those up. They're in the foyer today. 
Well, this morning, as we continue our our series uh, uh, in the book of Hebrews, I wanted to start out by uh, sharing just some things that have been happening in our country over the last several years. You see, over the last several years, there have been many individuals who have abandoned the faith that they once professed in Jesus Christ. From Hollywood to professional sports, From Christian musicians to pastors, the decision to turn away from the Christian faith is becoming all too common an occurrence. Stars of the big screen, such as Jennifer Lawrence and Jessica Alba, Kevin Bacon and Kathy Griffin, Julia Roberts, Orlando Bloom, George Clooney, and Anne Hathaway, all of those grew up in Christian homes. But each of them, for various reasons, has chosen to walk away from their faith. An Irish actor, Gabriel Byrne, turned from his faith after spending five years in seminary. And he, he has since said that he finds Christianity and the Catholic Church in particular a force of evil in the world and has compared it to the Nazi party. Byrne is now a proud atheist and speaks out against the church frequently. NFL quarterback Aaron Rodgers grew up going to church every Sunday, but came to a point in his life where he started to question what he believed and began considering religion as a crutch. Roger says that he no longer sees himself as a Christian and doesn't have any religious affiliation. Catherine Elizabeth Hudson grew up with parents who were born-again Christians, but when she became Katy Perry, the pop star, she decided to abandon her Christian faith. You know, I'd like to say that this problem is isolated in Hollywood or among Uh, the rebellious, but unfortunately, that's just not completely true. Here are a few more examples. In 2019, megachurch pastor Joshua Harris renounced his faith by saying this. He said, I have undergone a massive shift regarding my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements I have for defining a Christian, he finished by saying, I am not a Christian. In 2020, Jonathan Steingard, the lead vocalist of the Christian rock band Hawk Nelson, announced on Instagram that he no longer believed in God. Later that same year, Hillsong, Songwriter Marty Sampson wrote, Time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith. He went on and said, Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people. But it's not for me. I am not in anymore. In 2021, 
Dr. Paul Maxwell, which may be a name you're unfamiliar with. Uh, he is an author. He is a former professor at the Moody Bible Institute, and he was a writer for Desiring God, uh, an online ministry of John Piper. Dr. Paul Maxwell announced that he is no longer a Christian. In a video posted to Instagram, Maxwell said, I think it's important to say here that I'm just not a Christian anymore. Later that same year, Kevin Max, which you may not know that name either, but you probably know the group that he was a part of, former member of the award-winning trio DC Talk, Kevin Max revealed on social media that he had been deconstructing his faith for decades, and now he calls himself an ex-vangelical. ex Evangelical. You know, again, these are all celebrities of sorts. But can I just say that we don't have to look that far away to find people who are turning away from their faith. We just don't hear about the ones around us in the news. But they're all over. In fact, in 2019, even before the stress and the strain of the COVID pandemic, uh, a pastor of a Baptist church less than three hours away from where we are sitting today posted this on social media. He said, after 40 years of being a devout follower, 20 of those being an evangelical pastor, I am walking away from faith. Even though this has been a massive bomb drop in my life, it has been decades in the making. The question I have as I think about this is, how could this happen? How could people live their lives saying they believe one thing and then just walk away? What's going on? How could so many people be turning away from their faith? Well, as we continue our study in the book of Hebrews, we've come to a section of scripture that, frankly, can be easily misunderstood. And so in order to understand our text, I think it's important for us to understand one particular theological term, and that term is apostasy or apostate. So what is apostasy or what is an apostate? Well, from the Greek word apostasia, which that's where we get the word from, it comes directly from the Greek, the word means a falling away or a defection in the Bible, namely a defection from true religion. It's only used twice in the Greek New Testament. In Acts 21, 21, this word is used to refer to rumors about the Apostle Paul. You see, there were some people in Jerusalem who were saying that Paul was preaching that they should do away with the law of Moses and not adhere to its teachings anymore or forsake 
the law of Moses. And that, that word forsake is this word apostasia. This rumor was not true. And so they confronted Paul about it and he cleared the air in Acts 21. The other place that it occurs is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, this word is used to refer to a rebellion or a falling away that will take place at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so only two places that it uses that word specifically. But here in Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to see that this is talking about this same concept of someone who would defect from the Christian faith or fall away from the Christian faith. Well, that's what the word apostasy means. Uh, but I want to take a moment and illustrate for you what apostasy looks like. You see, if you turn back to Luke chapter 8, Jesus is teaching here, and he teaches a parable here. It's called, in most of our Bibles, the parable of the sower. Uh, I prefer to refer to this as the parable of the soils, because it's not so much a story about the sower the sowing seed, but rather the soils on which the seed lands. And so in Luke 8, verses 5 through 8, the Bible says, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and it, as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, parables are stories that have greater spiritual implications. Uh, and so they're like metaphors. Okay, uh, These are things that Jesus was trying to teach uh, but he did not want to just say plainly for everyone. That's what he tells us in the Gospels. And so he, he taught this parable uh, to a great crowd. But then the disciples came back to him and said, Jesus, wait a minute. We have no idea what you were trying to teach when you taught this parable about the sower sowing seed. And so fortunately, Jesus explain this parable for us and as I've I've said recently the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself and so we find here what Jesus had to say about this parable just a few verses down starting in verse 11 Jesus said now the parable is this the seed is the word of God so the seed that's being thrown out to the different types of soil is the word of God. And we, as the ones who are teaching God's word, are the sowers. So we sow the seed, the word of God, and that seed lands on four different types of soil. And so he goes on and he explains each of those soils. He said the seed that falls on the hardened path, that is... Just like the, the word of God that lands on a person's 
heart and in a person's life whose heart is hardened and that word, that seed is stolen away by Satan. The second uh, soil was the, the seed that was sown in the rocky soil. And it said that the word was received, but that it did not take root. And so it grew up quickly, but then it also died quickly. The third soil was the, the thorny soil. And so that seed was sown in the thorny soil, and the word, that seed, was received once again. But then it says that the thorns are the cares of this world. And the cares of this world choked out the, the seed. It choked out the word of God and its impact on the life of that person. And then finally, the good soil was that person who received the word and firmly implanted it in their heart. They held fast to the word and they bore fruit as a result. So the question about this parable is which of these soils represent true believers? There is some debate on this issue, but I believe that only the good soil represents those who are true believers. Because Jesus said, by their fruit, you will know my disciples. So if you don't bear fruit as a disciple, then you're not truly a disciple. So a proper understanding of this parable, in my opinion, is essential for our understanding of our passage in Hebrews. And so I'm thankful that Jesus didn't just share the content of the parable, but he told us what it meant as well. So if you will turn back with me, if you were there earlier, to Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to jump into our text now. Uh, if you do not have your Bible, the text is on the screen above. But we'll pick up where we left off last week in Hebrews 10 verse 26, and we'll read through verse 31. The Bible says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This morning we're going to be considering this concept of the consequences of not living by faith. The consequences of not living by faith. But before we consider these consequences, we need to make it clear as to what this passage is not teaching. You see, this passage 
is not teaching that a person can lose their salvation. There are some churches that believe a person can lose their salvation if they do certain things. You know, if they commit certain sins, then, then their salvation is lost. R. Kent Hughes uh, states about this issue, uh, and whenever uh, I read the commentary by Hughes, he always refers to the author of Hebrews as the preacher. I, I, I call uh, the author the author, you know, because we don't know who it is, but Hughes says the preacher. He says, now the preacher is not saying that if believers persist in sinning deliberately, there will come a point where the effect of Christ's sacrifice runs out. He's not saying that if a believer persists in their sin, that there will be a, come a point where Christ would say, I've paid for your sins up to this point, but I'm not paying for anything further. That's not what he's saying. Rather, what the writer is describing is a graceless reprobate. Now, that's not a word we use very often in our culture today, is it? A reprobate. But essentially, a reprobate is someone who has absolutely no good whatsoever in them. He says, the person that's being described is a graceless reprobate. Characterized by two things, deliberate, deliberateness and continuance. He goes on to say, he says, our text is talking about deliberate, intentional sin. Moreover, this deliberate sin is continual. The person persists in open rebellion against God and against his word. Now, folks, we need to understand that every person born is born as a graceless reprobate. It's what we refer to in our Christian doctrine as depravity, meaning that we are all sinners. And the wages of sin is death. But Romans tells us the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the Bible is absolutely clear that salvation is a free gift of God. It is given by grace as a result of faith. And there is nothing that anyone can do in order to earn or deserve salvation. Right? If there's nothing we can do to earn salvation, to deserve salvation, if there's nothing we can do to get salvation, then there is nothing we can do to lose it either. It's not something that is our work to be done, but it is the work of God that is done. It's a work of God through Christ's atoning sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And so once a person believes that God raised Jesus from the dead and proclaims that Jesus is the Lord of their life, he will be saved. And the Holy Spirit of God will be given to that person to live inside that person as a down payment of the inheritance that we are promised in eternity. And once sealed by the Holy Spirit, 
There is nothing that can ever take that salvation away. Understanding all of this to be true. Who then is the author speaking of here in Hebrews 10, 26-31? Well, according to verse 26, the author is referring to people who have received the knowledge of truth. Think about that for just a second. I'll read it again. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Who is the author referring to? Well... Hughes went on to say, here's the point. This individual has received the knowledge of the truth, meaning the content of Christianity as truth. He knows what God has done in Christ, and he understands what God has done in Christ. But he intentionally, knowingly rejects it and willfully continues in an unremitting state of sin. The person that is talked about here in Hebrews 10.26 is a person who can tell you the plan of salvation. They have just chosen to not believe it. It's not just a, a mental ascent like what is mentioned in James 2.19 where James said, you know, uh, you believe in God and that's a great thing, but even the demons believe. It's not that word in the original language. It's not uh, pistuo, the, the, the believe or faith, belief or faith, but rather it is understanding of the faith. It is a complete Understanding, epigonosco. We've talked about that word before. This is a complete understanding of the f knowledge of truth. How is it possible that someone with true understanding does not truly possess salvation by grace through faith? That's where we go back to the parable of the soils. It's rocks and it's thorns. It's rocks and it's thorns. You see the seed sown in the rocky soil was received by the individual. But it did not take root is what Jesus said. And the seed sown among the thorns was also received. But it was choked out by the cares of this world. Well, what does it mean, cares of this world? What do we care about? Usually that could most easily be described as the sin in our life. Sin kept us from having faith in Christ. We wanted to continue in sin more than we wanted to trust in him. Well, there will be many who stand before the Lord someday expecting mercy from him. 
and they will receive none. Jesus taught in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Cannot imagine anything worse to ever hear someone say, especially the Lord of all creation, say to me, depart from me, I never knew you. But that is what an apostate is. Someone who understands the truth, but chooses to reject the truth. So as we look at these consequences of not living by faith, I want to beg you this morning. And I use that word very specifically. I plead with you today. Take this time to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test that's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13 King James version there says except ye be retrobates Oh, sorry, reprobates. Except ye be reprobates, which is exactly what we're looking at here in Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. We're looking at reprobates, apostates, people living in open rebellion. And so again, now we ask, what are the consequences of not living by faith? What are the consequences of apostasy? Well, the first thing we see in verses 26 and 27 is that there will be no forgiveness of sin, only an expectation of judgment. No forgiveness of sin, only an expectation of judgment. Here's the interesting thing that we need to understand, folks. This sin that's being described here cannot be committed by anyone other than what we would refer to as church people. Because if you're not a part of the church, then you don't know the truth of the gospel. You do not have a knowledge of the faith. But people who sit in church buildings every week that hear this message of the gospel and reject it, these are the ones that are referred to here as continually rejecting, deliberately going on in their sin. If you're listening to me today and have listened to me for any length of time, then you understand the truths of the gospel. What are you going to do with that truth? determines whether you are 
an apostate, or a follower of Jesus Christ. To choose to continue in your sin rather than accept the free gift of salvation is to reject Christ's sacrifice for sin. In other words, rejecting Christ. And therefore, it says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin for those who reject Him. So when you choose to reject Christ, judgment in the form of a fury of fire in hell is what awaits you. That's what verse 27 says. A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That is what you have to look forward to if you reject Jesus Christ. So the first thing we see, the consequences of apostasy, are no forgiveness of sin, but an expectation of judgment. The second thing we see is immediate physical death according to the old covenant. Notice what he says here in verse 20, 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now once again, the author is pointing the reader back to the Old Covenant, to the Old Testament, to remind them of the consequences of disregarding God's law. And if you were to look back at Deuteronomy chapter 17, you would find in verses 2 through 7 what happens if someone disregards God's law. Deuteronomy 17.2 says, If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing. And you shall stone that man or woman with, to death with stones. On the evidence of two or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people so you shall purge the evil from your midst. The author of Hebrews knew that his readers would understand what he was talking about. They knew the law because they lived their life every day by the law. And so in, in that Deuteronomy 17 passage, we find the offense of that person. The offense was that they forsook God. They turn to a worship of other idols or worship of celestial uh, you know, beings, not beings, celestial, uh, yeah, sun, moon, and stars, whatever you call those things, right? They, they, they abandoned God and they abandoned the law of Moses. And so they adjudicated the situation. They look, are there witnesses to show that this was what was really happening? If they found two or three witnesses, immediately they went 
to the sentencing process. The accusation had to be proved beyond doubt. One witness was not enough. But when there were two or three witnesses who agreed, it was over. No mercy whatsoever. No appeal process. Certain death. The author points this old covenant law out to his readers in order to emphasize the severity of the punishment that he is about to talk about in the next verse under the new covenant. You see, it was immediate physical death according to the old covenant. But under the new covenant, it was spiritual death. Maybe not immediate, but an eventual spiritual death. In Hebrews 10.29, the author starts out and says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who does these things? He's pointed back to the old covenant and said, That was bad. What those people did was bad and they deserved to die. How much worse is this, they say. There are three things that he points out here in verse 29. He says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Three different things that we see here. The first, being trampled underfoot the Son of God. What does that mean? It means someone who attacks the person of Jesus Christ. They're trampling underfoot the Son of God. They're trampling underfoot Jesus Christ and what he has done. There are so many examples in the world today. Go online and you don't have to look very far. You, so many examples of people who are trampling underfoot the person of Jesus Christ. I don't even want to share them. I'm going to share one in just a minute, but I'm not even going to tell you who said that because I don't want to give them the platform that this is to know who they are. There's so many people who are trampling Jesus. And why are they doing that? Because they've rejected him. And the only way that mentally they can understand and justify their rejection is to denigrate him in some way. So they're trampling underfoot the Son of God. They are profaning the blood of the covenant. Not only are they attacking the person of Christ, they are attacking the work of Christ. You see, Jesus Christ came to this earth for one purpose, and that was to pay the penalty for sin through his death on the cross. It was his blood shed on the cross that is the atonement for our sin. And because Christ's blood was nothing less than his divine life that he willingly offered, 
It could do what no animal's blood could ever do. It provided atonement for the sins of all mankind. The sort of apostate that's pictured here had at one time professed Christ. They had a knowledge of the truth. They, they professed faith in Christ. They listened to the word being preached. They celebrated the Lord's Supper. But this person, this apostate, his faith, such as it was, was not internal and was not genuine. And now he consciously rejects Christ's work. Jesus' blood, he says, is common. Just like any other man's blood. There's nothing special about it. There's nothing it did. That's what he's saying. That's this apostate that is deliberately sinning. Continues to sin. He attacks the person of Christ. He attacks the work of Christ. But if you notice the last phrase there, he's also attacking the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. It says that he has outraged the spirit of grace. This concept of grace is something that we have talked about a lot. And we've stated that grace is the unmerited favor of God. When we extend grace to someone, it means that we are giving them something they do not deserve. When God extended grace to us, he provided us with something we did not deserve. And here the Bible calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of grace. For the Spirit of grace to become outraged would really take something, wouldn't it? I mean, you've met a person who's just very gracious in all of their dealings, right? You know that person. And it's okay, you don't have to think of me because I know who I am. Um, You know that person who is so very gracious that they're always considerate and kind and caring. Well, the Spirit of God personifies that multiplied over and over again. And here it says that the Spirit of grace is outraged. For that to happen, it would have required an immense act of hubris or arrogance. By the way, the Greek word there for outraged is the word from which we get our word hubris. Here's an example of such hubris, of such arrogance. And again, I'm not going to give you this person's name because I don't want to let you know who they are. I can show you where it is later if you really need to know. But this gentleman wrote a letter that's online to all believers in Jesus Christ. And he said, he starts the letter this way. He said, you ask me to consider Christianity as the answer for my life. I have done that. I consider it untrue, repugnant, and harmful. This was his letter. 
And then he goes on and he tells all the reasons why. And I'm not going to read those to you. I don't want to give them the time. But then he finishes his letter by saying these words. Do you see why I do not respect the biblical message? It is an insulting bag of nonsense. You have every right to torment yourself with such insanity, but leave me out of it. I have better things to do with my life. What arrogance. What arrogance. I can understand in, in light of something such as that, that the spirit of grace would be outraged. The author asks, how much worse punishment will be deserved? In verse 29. Laying aside the Old Testament law resulted in physical death. But the rejection of Christ as the fulfillment of the new covenant will result in spiritual death. That is an eternal separation from God. A much worse punishment than even being stoned to death. Even though many prefer to think of Jesus only as loving and merciful, we need to remember that Jesus did not shy away from this teaching about the punishment of hell. In Matthew 13, he says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. Where In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, 49 and 50. In Matthew 25, 41, he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Uh, later in that same chapter, verse 46, Matthew 25, 46, he said, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 48, I'm not reading all of it, but it says there, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. He goes on and says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Folks, you cannot understand the teachings of Scripture without the doctrines of judgment and hell. You cannot. Charles Spurgeon says, to think lightly of hell is to think lightly of the cross. So the consequences of apostasy is spiritual death. And the last is inescapable terror. Inescapable terror in the day of judgment. 
verses 30 and 31 talk about the, the wrath of God, the vengeance of God, the, the judgment that God promises will one day come. And 31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, there are a few things that, that this inescapable terror looks like. We already said it in the, in the previous point about spiritual death. Spiritual death is a separation. And that is the terror that we have to look forward to. Union with God is bliss. But separation from God is horror. Folks, every good thing that you have in this life is from God. Everything that you enjoy on this planet is a gift from God. So you, you take away all of that. Anything good that you've ever experienced. Because that will not exist in hell. It is separation from God and every good thing from God. It's also eternal. You know, I don't think we have any kind of frame of reference for what eternity is actually going to be like. We get just a, a small glimpse of it in... Um, in the fourth verse of the, uh, the song, Amazing Grace. You remember? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Can you imagine that? 10,000 years that we will be in heaven with the Lord and it will have just started. There's, there's no frame of reference for our finite minds to think about the infinite aspects of eternity. That's a wonderful thought. But eternity exists in both heaven and hell. The author stated in verse 27 that the expectation of judgment would be filled with fear. So that's why I referred to this last point as the inescapable terror in the day of judgment. We have historical evidence of this. Uh, I think of uh, Voltaire, a French writer and philosopher who died in 1778. He was an outspoken critic of Christianity. Speaking of Christ, Voltaire once said, curse the wretch. Can you imagine the arrogance? Voltaire also said, in 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to rear. That's what he said. Ironically, his home became a distribution center for the Geneva Bible Society after his death. The arrogance, the hubris of that man. 
Well, when it came time for Voltaire to die, which all of us will face that time, he was struck with terror on that day. His nurse said that even if she was given all the money in Europe, she would not want to watch another infidel die. It was so horrendous that she would not go through it ever again. His doctor reported that Voltaire cried out in agony as he was about to die, saying, I am abandoned by God. There is an inescapable terror in the day of judgment. Well, that was several hundred years ago. But I'm, I'm familiar with a, an individual who sat and watched her mother die. She told me about this incident. Her father had already passed away before. And as her father was dying, there was a peace about him as he went on to be with his Savior. But she told me that as she was watching her mother gasping for her last breaths, that there was an immense terror that overcame her in those moments just before she died. Folks, hell is real. It is devoid of anything good that you enjoy. I mean, you've probably heard it said, I want to go to hell because that's where all my friends are going to be. No. Hell is a place of darkness. Hell is a place of isolation. It is a place of torment and suffering for all eternity. Don't reject the truth of God's word. The wrath of God is what awaits you if you do. Today I'm begging you, put your trust in Jesus Christ who is offering to you eternal life. It's your choice. And you have a choice to make today. You know what? Going to church is not enough to keep you from experiencing eternal separation from God. Reading your Bible, not enough. Coming from a Christian family, it's not enough. Even understanding the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not enough. None of these are enough to keep you from experiencing that separation. The only remedy for this dilemma is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as a result 
of your repentance of sin. Nothing else will suffice. For there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else. Only Jesus. So I leave you with this thought. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. And Lord, I know that for me this week, this was difficult, um, difficult truth to prepare. And Father, I assume it's difficult truth to hear. Uh, but Father... I know that there are people here today that are rejecting your son, Jesus Christ, as their Savior. And so, Father, I pray for the Holy Spirit of grace to move in their heart, to convict them of their sin, And to convince them that they need your son Jesus Christ as their savior. Father we entrust this work to you. Father I pray for the souls of those who are dealing with this decision right now. Lord let them not reject your son any longer. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.